This is episode 27 of Extraordinary Women Radio. Welcome to Extraordinary Women Radio. I am your host, Cami Gellner. Women are being called to live with voice, vitality, and vigor. Each month, join me for wisdom-filled interviews with extraordinary women living out loud and making a difference in our world. Their stories will uplift, inspire, and spark your own purpose-driven journey. Hello, extraordinary women. Today, I'm really honored to host yet another Colorado Women Hall of Famer, Eleanor Miller Greenberg. Eleanor is an educational innovator, a theorist, and a writer who impacts education, civil rights, and women's rights locally, nationally, and internationally. A visionary, Eleanor believes that education is the key to social change and social justice. As a national leader in adult education, in adult development, Eleanor has worked with the major colleges and universities in Colorado and was also a guest faculty member of the Harvard University School of Education Institute for the Management of Lifelong Education. She has authored, co-authored, and edited nine books and more than 200 papers. Wow. And at 85 years young, Eleanor shares lessons she's learned over her change-impacting life. She shares the story of how she became an activist as a mama with a baby on her hip and how she lived by the mantra, go where no one else will go, do what no one else will do. She loves being her current age and offers third life wisdom. She's got grit, she's got grace, and she's certainly made an impact on our world. I especially enjoy our conversation about how she has built friendships across political lines with people she has been friends with for over 50 years, an important lesson for all of us in today's modern age. You will love this interview with Eleanor's deep wisdom. Let's meet Eleanor Miller Greenberg. Hi, Ellie. I'm really honored to have you with us today. I just always love speaking with the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame inductees, so welcome. Thank you, Tammy. Yes, it's an honor to have you here. And I want to start with a really bold question that I normally would not ask, but you invited me to ask, so I get to ask this question today. Tell us how old you are. How old I am? Well, I will be 85 in November. Awesome, awesome, awesome. How would you describe this current stage of your life? Uh, surprising. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us more. <laughs> well, it's, um, it certainly has its health challenges. Yes, so things are changing from that perspective. Yes. And um, I would say I've, it's, it's a reorganization time. Okay. When um, how I use my time is a little more purposeful, mm-hmm. and um, I'm conscious of, of each day. Mm-hmm. And shouldn't and we it, always be that way, right? I mean, it's like such a, that's a great lesson for all of us to be taking in, to be conscious of every single day and be interested in how we are, you know, being very pointed in how we do choose to spend our time. Well, yeah, and that's a, that's a kind of a, a lesson that one would give to others, but it's not always um, attended to because there don't seem to be any um, incentives very often right. to to push people in the direction of being very purposeful about their time expenditure. Although I think 
I think busy people are very are very concerned about their time expenditure and are very conscious of how it is they're using their days. Yes. The busier the people, the more the more they may be uh, concerned with time. Right. Right. I totally agree with that. You talk about the concept of the three thirds of life uh, and what that means for your career and life decisions. Can you tell us more about what that means? Well, I'm uh, among other things, a writer and I have written, you've written many books, books, right? Right. I've written books. uh, One set of books earlier uh, Mm -hmm. related to my work in higher education Mm -hmm. and then uh, later on more personal books about my my own life mm-hmm. and about and about the stages of the life that i was in at the time uh and and it, i i developed this notion of a three-thirds of life because i think that there are characteristics of each of those thirds okay and um yeah and so we you know we think of the zero to 30 Mm-hmm. Those are certainly uh, the growing up years and the college years and you know the school years and the beginning of adulthood uh, and thirty to sixty is really a very busy time for most women mm-hmm. it's the years in which uh, usually marriages are underway and um, children are arriving. And children are growing up, and by the time one reaches 60, one would hope that kids are launched right, <laughs> and, and, and no longer dependent on their parents. And whether or not you're well, or your spouse is well, or whether there is a spouse anymore, etc., those are the midlife years that are really very very busy for many of us, whether we're married or not. Mm-hmm. And um, and after 60 is kind of a blur for people because we do not have very good literature relating uh, issues of the later years. And one could break up from 60 to, what, 90? Right. <laughs> um, to uh, and 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 realize that the 60s and 70s and 80s are each decade really rather different in a number of ways, and it's very health dependent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a period of time when you're once again focused on self, mm-hmm. as compared with the external world, and. Um, uh, and I would say that the, we have less. Um, good literature and guidance for how to live those years really well. And what are you uh, learning so, about those? I mean, if you were to, if you were able to share, you know, if, if the literature hasn't been there, what would you like people to know about those years? Well, I think one thing would be that <clears throat> what used to be considered quote old is not really considered old anymore Mm -hmm. in the same way Mm -hmm. because people are busy more so than they used to be 
when they're in their 60s and 70s and, and 80s, and some in even their 90s. Right. So, so what, what used to be um, years of retirement may still be officially retired from one's job uh, or career, but they're not retired from life. Yeah, and even and, the impact and, that you can make, right? Well, the impact you can make, but also the kinds of things you're, you can be involved in doing. Right. It doesn't mean that you, you've stopped everything. Right, exactly. <laughs> or or whatever, whatever view people have. And as I say, there's, there's not a very good image for the, that, that is contemporary for those years. But I think most, fortunately, most people have really been healthy well into their well into their 80s and certainly through their 70s right and that doesn't mean that that you know everyone is is hunky dory well or or um not not preoccupied with some level of well-being physical or mental right but it, it i think we are living longer in in a a, a better shape than people in the past have have and therefore the question comes what is it one does with every day right each day right and and what and what are what are some kinds of realistic goals if one should have any goals at that period of time and what would be the reason to have goals right and do you have Uh, goals now well i think I think uh, without having had an opportunity like this to articulate them uh, before, I would say certainly one goal is to maintain my physical well-being mm-hmm. as best I can and to do some things that may be new in terms of, of keeping well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think... Um, the other thing is, is there's a focus that's maybe a little bit more on one's family mm-hmm. as compared to one's friends and, and, and the external world. Um, begin to cherish the times with your family, however that family is configured, right. and, and realize that they're not all going to be around forever, and nor are you. Right. <laughs> so that it. So it live every really, day. It really does become, yeah, important to uh, to value what you might have considered the ordinary in your life. Yeah, and you and, know, one one thing I heard you say, um, I've heard you say, is that way back in the '40s and '50s, you somehow knew that women's lives what women's lives would be like in the 21st century and that you set out quite purposefully to become that kind of woman. And what I particularly like in that statement is, is, is the become. I often speak with my clients as who do you aspire to be versus what do you aspire to do? Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a difference between what do you aspire to be and what do you aspire to do? And when you were, you know, thinking about that, you know, back in the forties and fifties, that what was it that, that you wanted to become? I wanted to become, yeah, I really did want to become 
what you, we would call a career person or career mm-hmm. woman, I knew I had to have, I believed that I had to have a career that would be, um, be able, to, by which I could support myself. Mm-hmm. And, and not, not, most of my friends in college were not thinking that way. Okay. But if they were thinking about what they were going to major in and what their job might be, et cetera, it was like a job. It was not a career. Okay. And it was not uh, necessarily something <clears throat> supporting oneself did not, did not seem as, as um, immediate and important to my friends as it did to me. Yeah. And what did you and see what, happening in the world out in front of you? I mean, the, 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 what could you foresee the world was going to be, how it was going to be evolving and how you wanted to play a difference in that? Well, there's the personal and then there's, of course, the, you know, the, the larger world. Right. The, the larger world had been at war. And all through my college years, uh, we, we were in World War II. Mm-hmm. And, and I was accustomed to a world which was pretty unsettled. Right. And uh, to having men coming and going in the surface. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully coming <laughs> coming back home again, but not everyone was coming back home. Right. And so there were a lot of unknowns, and a lot of things you couldn't depend upon, and uh, the, the likelihood of of uh, the world changing was really always there. And in mm-hmm. fact, it was changing in very real ways right in front of your face for most of the years that I was growing up. Uh, so I, you know, the, the World War II years were when I was in an elementary school and high school, and um, and then following that was Korea, mm-hmm. and following that was Vietnam. Right. So there was always there was always a war to which uh, our young men were subject, and uh, to the draft. And of course, the women were not subject to the draft, which was right, always a time, curiosity. Yeah. It began to be a discussion at that point right. in time. Uh, so that was the that, that well, that's what was going on in the public world. In my private world, uh, my parents had gotten divorced, and yet that occurred in the beginning of my college career, mm-hmm. which was 1950, mm-hmm. 19, yeah, 50, 49, 50. And that was the biggest jolt of my entire life. Okay. And um, uh, the circumstances that produced that were so unanticipated uh, because we were the we were the ideal family. We were the family others looked to for being, you know, perfect, where the parents were good looking and. <laughs> And had a good time together, and right. we belonged to a country club, and we went dancing, and we went to New York and saw plays, and we were right up on Broadway all the time, <clears throat> and we had what was viewed as a very ideal life. My father had made was making money, and we were able to afford many things that my friends couldn't afford. And then there was this giant surprise in the first semester of my college years. 
that my parents were going to be divorced. And it was like, like a dream. It was like unheard of. Right. And it took, it, it took quite a few, <laughs> quite a few hours, days for me to really absorb what was what they were telling me in a car on the way home from college, by the way, right. uh, driving home back to New Jersey for a weekend. And uh, it didn't occur to me until wasn't real until we got to my house and my father dropped us off and left and went somewhere else. And did that and really re- help you uh, even probably put a, a bigger emphasis for you that you needed to go support yourself and, and build a career that, from that definitely. perspective? Yeah, definitely. Yes. And I saw I saw my mother, who had had a rather typical uh, early adulthood when she had a job and so forth and so on. But she hadn't worked in eighteen years, right? And she didn't have a career. You know, she had a job, and uh, I knew at that point that I wasn't going to be in that. I wasn't going to allow myself to be in that kind of situation. And you and even got so, very, um, so you, at this point, you, you got really clear that you wanted to go work in the, the realm of social justice and social change um, with, with education at the foundation, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's right. So tell us a little bit about that, how, how, why education is the key to social change and social justice and, and how that led your, your next steps. Well, my work was really in speech pathology, mm-hmm. and I went, to gra- I went to graduate school <clears throat> to become a speech therapist and to be certified and to be able to work as a professional person, particularly in the medical arena. Mm-hmm. And that was a familiar and uh, a valued arena for me and for my family. So be, becoming, you know, someone in the medical field was was a good thing, and uh, I spent. That's why uh, I spent the next year of my life in a big hurry <laughs> to, again <laughs> to finish a, a degree, in, yeah, in speech pathology, right, and to be prepared to to find a, a job that would be the beginning of a career. Right. Now that that wasn't social justice. Uh, step that was a, a professional step, really, right. and a, a self-supporting step. As far as uh, social justice was concerned, I we were in a period of time when um, when issues of race and um, of, co- of race and color and um, opportunity. We're beginning to emerge in a whole new way in a post-war world, meaning that uh, we were not yet in what would be called the civil rights movement, not until the 60s, really. But in the 50s, there was a lot of a lot of sorting going on, and mm-hmm. people were people were kind of sorting themselves out uh, relative to being active in activists in some way, uh, articulating a position in some ways, a position relative to equality and to uh, matters of social importance. And some people were, you know, women, I'm speaking about women at this point, were particularly silent and didn't really have a, 
a point of view that was, you know, important to them. But for many reasons, um, it was very important to me to see uh, what we called Negroes at the time, uh, black women uh, and, and men, but particularly women, have an opportunity to succeed. And I, I was, um, there, were very, there were a few black women at Mount Holyoke, not many, and I always became friends with them. And um, uh, I took it upon myself to think about uh, opportunities that would be available to black women. And it wasn't clear that there were very many because really there were not very many uh, women of color at Mount Holyoke, although there were some. And Holyoke prided itself on being a place for women's opportunity and was in fact the first women's college in the country. Okay. And so it was the first place that a woman could get an education equal to that of a male. Mm -hmm. And that was back in 1837, wow. before the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And I, I just really uh, tuned into that. I mean, that, I, I, I embraced that um, history of my institution, and I felt that um, it was my responsibility to do the same in my era that the founder, Mary Lyon, had done in her era. Mm, that's nice. And her words became really my banner. Her, I quote her often in my speeches, and she is known to have said, go where no one else will go, do what no one else will do. Mm. And I did that. That's I felt that I could, I could plow new ground, that I could make new things happen, uh, that it was my responsibility, having been given this glorious education, mm -hmm. having that privilege, that uh, I had uh, a responsibility to find ways to do the same for other women. Right. In, in right. whatever form that might be. Right. So what were some of the things that you're most proud of that you actually, you know, did do, you know, to go where you, where someone else hadn't gone or to do something that someone else hadn't done. What are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of the, uh, what we did in the sixties. And uh, by then I was married and had children and was living in, a, in an area just outside of Littleton, Colorado mm -hmm. with a Littleton address, although we were in Arapahoe County in an unincorporated part of the county. We weren't in the city of Littleton. And um, the issue, issues in the 60s were particularly housing. And I had moved out of Denver and, and we were living in this very, very lily white community. Mm -hmm. And um, so I uh, helped to organize something called Littleton Council for Human Relations. Mm -hmm. And we had this fabulous organization, and both men and women were um, members. We had many couples. If you looked at the roster, it said Mr. and Mrs. Mm -hmm. uh, in an old-fashioned way, right. you know. Mr. <laughs> and Mrs. Richard something, right? Cor 
Correct, correct. But the, the fact of the matter was that we had both men and women in this organization, which was very important. And um, we were not, quote, a woman's organization. And mm -hmm. we, were, we, we were a community organization. And we worked very hard on the Colorado Fair Housing Law. And we, uh, we were very active at the legislature uh, in helping to shape that law. It, we, it really was an amendment to the current, what, what had been the current law, which was very, very minor. It really wasn't protecting very many people against discrimination in housing. But we strengthened that housing law. And I learned politics at that time. I learned, mm. I learned what the legislature was all about. And right. we literally were down there. I was down there with my babies <laughs> every day. Right. You know, it was like the, what was on the docket at the legislature was my marching orders for the day. With your baby on and, your hip. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we didn't have babysitters. We didn't have, I mean, we, we, the babysitters we had during the day were like elderly women who might come from, uh, our mine came from the foothills in the mountains whenever we went out. And, I, you know, it was a little luxurious to ask her to come for an entire day while I was sitting at the legislature lobbying for fair housing. So, I mean, it was a mixture of so many things because I, we carried our kids with us. We went down to the legislature uh, and we learned how a bill got passed, you know, got created and passed. We, we got to know the people who were the leaders of the parties. And um, when that fair housing law was passed, it was a, it was a personal celebration. Right. It was really a, uh, a lesson in uh, in active democracy. And what do you so think was, was the what What do you attribute the success of that time to? I mean, when you go when you think back to that, um, you know, the determination that you had to, to show up every day like that. What were some of the the key factors that that helped you succeed there? And and I, and I asked this question just as as you think about. The, the women listening today, right, there's, like, there's all kinds of things that people want to be change makers for. Um, you know, what's that advice you would give them to help lead that change in their own passion, you know, that area that they see that they can make a difference or they want to make a difference? What advice would you share with them on that? Well, I think, first of all, you have to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. In other words, you have to have read the literature and the, perhaps the proposals, the legislation that is being proposed, and you have to be knowledgeable. You can't go into those arenas, you know, with some half, <laughs> halfway notion of what, you know, what justice is, and then, then say, well, now let's see, where, they, where, where was that piece of paper <laughs> called a bill? Right, you, you have really to really have know to it. You really have to read it and know it and know what its implications are, both positives and negative. That okay. is, who is going to object and why? What are they protecting? Right. Because people who object to legislation are protecting something. Mm -hmm. they're, protect this, they're protecting something that they either already have that they think are threatened by new legislation 
or they're, 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 they're protecting something they want to have and, and they, they think they won't be able to get it if there is new legislation. Right. So you have to begin to translate the, the notion of a, a bill, a piece of legislation into something personal. And see it through their eyes. Because your neighbor next door is not doing what you're doing. I mean, right. she's not going downtown every day. She's, right. she's got her hands on her hips and she belongs to the other party. And she's saying, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You, you, and people in my neighborhood were very angry with me. Mm-hmm. There was a gentleman two houses up who came storming into my house one day, you know, and really was yelling at me <laughs> to the point where my where my kids were frightened because he has he had I welcomed him in to say hello. It was a summer day, as I remember, and he barged through the door and really read the riot act to mm-hmm. me about what I was doing. And I was mm-hmm. destroying the na- the property values in the neighborhood. And, and it took, I will tell you 25 years until he apologized. Wow. But he, he did apologize. Only, he, uh, with, with the urging of my husband, <laughs> my husband literally went over to him at a party and said, so-and-so, don't you think it's time you apologize to my wife? Aww. And, and this guy, who will not be named, uh, did come over to me and say that he was sorry. Yes. That he behaved so boorishly and yeah. so badly that day to the point where my son ran to the telephone and called my husband and said, so-and-so is... is, is 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 mad at mommy he's threatening mommy he's gonna hurt so i mean it was really a dramatic moment and we all remember it very clearly and i think the point uh, there is is you have to sometimes stand up to those really harsh hard conversations that might be happening well they are happening and if there's a public public issue somewhere it's gonna you know if it's public it's going to be in some arena Mm-hmm. And you're going to be at some kind of meeting somewhere or some church service or some something or other where that is discussed and you'll you'll be pushed to take a position. Right. And uh, and it, that those days were um, were activist days. I don't know. I can't speak for today so well because I'm not as involved with public issues today as I mm-hmm. was then. Mm-hmm. But there were <clears throat> there, hardly, a, you know, a, a week would go by that there wasn't some place that that the that particular law was, you know, being discussed because it was really big, a big deal and it meant a great deal to to white suburbia and it meant a great deal to uh, to to people of color who were still in the city and. Um, may or may not have had personal ambitions to move to suburbia, but even if they didn't personally, they understood what the justice issues were. Right. And, uh, and essentially that's kind of what happened. We did end up passing the bill. We don't see enormous changes today, even you know this many years later, uh, although there are certain pockets of, of, of of housing, residential housing, where you know, which is which are more integrated 
than other areas. Right. But it was uh, clear that Park Hill was was the target of of the Denver uh, integration effort and people who wanted to move across Colorado Boulevard to the east into Park Hill were being resisted. And that's, that was the battleground. Okay. Now, and I lived in Littleton, so, you know, we were 25 miles away. Right. Yeah. But you were still and, but, standing up for this, saying this isn't right and correct. we need to shift we this. Wanted, we wanted it to be, we wanted to be sure that if people did in fact want to move, whether it be Park Hill or Littleton or, or wherever, or wherever that they, you know, had, had the, the ability to do so relative to the law. Where did your and courage come the, from at that time? <laughs> I don't know that I can tell you. I, I don't know. <laughs> but because the gentleman up the street was a pretty big guy. Yeah. And it was, it was difficult to be right. at odds with your neighbors. You know, right. you always wanted to be in, with nice, with good relationships with your neighbors. And right. I, knew, I knew Jolly well. My friend next door didn't agree with me. And mm-hmm. we had been we had been neighbors, and we are still neighbors. She is, she she and I moved built our houses within three days of each three three weeks of each other, mm-hmm. and we mo- both moved in around Labor Day. She moved in maybe a few weeks before I did, and uh, we we've lived together all these years. Right. How many years? Let me see, fifty <laughs> fifty four years or something yeah. like that. I yeah. have to do the arithmetic to know. Uh, it was, I, I just really. Yeah. <laughs> it, and it, it was, was courageous. More, it was it's courageous. More 50, it's yeah. more than 50 years ago that we have been neighbors and good friends. Yeah. But we do not agree politically. Right. We've, we've never agreed politically. And I think that's a really good point because there are so many people right now at, you know, at odds with each other on politics and on issues and, you know, within families, within neighborhoods. And there is, we can take a stand and stand up for what we believe in and and drive the change that we want to create, but we don't have to break our relationships with those on an opposite side of an issue. What, how did, how did you let that relationship, um, be, how did how were you friends through that? How did you maintain a friendship through that? Well, our our friendship was very much rooted in our children. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had four children; I had three, and she was a t- particularly good mom. And uh, since I was working <laughs> and had been working, even when my children were little. Um, she very often played second mom. Mm-hmm. You know, my <laughs> if you scraped your knee, go go next door and tell Millie about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because she would fix it. Yeah. And uh, she was very, she was very, she is a very generous person mm-hmm. and a very uh, loyal Christian person. Mm-hmm. And she um, she did li- literally take care of my kids. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes when I hadn't gotten back from work yet or whatever, and uh, if I had to call on somebody and, a, and the kids were sick or something like that, she was the one I would call upon. Yeah. So we had, we, we took care of each other's children and we took care of each other's houses 
you know, if one was going right. away somewhere or whatever, right. we were always looking after each other's homes and we were good neighbors. Right. And we didn't agree politically. She, you know, I'm a Democrat, yeah. she was a Republican mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and, and her views were rooted in a very different, um, it just a very different place than mine were. Right. She was Christian, I was Jewish, and we we had lots of differences. But my kids went to the Sunday school with her kids, for, you know, for mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. And her kids went to Sunday school every now and then with my kids. Yep. And uh, they ex- we exchanged... Uh, um, you know, food and right. and cakes. We were we were just very good friends and good neighbors. Mm, but I we were that. not we were not political politically in the same place at all. Even though our values were not so different. <laughs> That's, you know, yes. they, mm-hmm. they were rooted in in very different traditions. But when it came to college, for example, we recognized each other's strengths. And when it came to college matters, when the children grew up and were heading for applying to colleges, she would send her kids over here to hear about colleges from me because right. she knew that I was knew that. involved in right. higher education. Right. And that I knew a lot about schools. And she did. Her kids went to wonderful colleges. Yeah, They went to Claremont and they, they went to Stanford and they really, they were achieving kids. We both had um, uh, kids who were smart and who got great grades and always had honored this and that. And uh, so we had a common, we had a common base of um, uh, of achievement that our children and we and we valued. We both valued excellence when it came to schoolwork. And, and, and selection of colleges. And so she, she, she always identified what I was good at and I d- identified what she was good at. Yeah, and I think that's a beautiful lesson, right, is really to see beyond the politics of things amongst the people around us, no matter where anyone stands on it, and, and see the good in the person across the table and the next house or down the block or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's good. So the final question I have for you today is what three pearls of wisdom can you leave with our audience? Oh my. Well, I, um, the first one, I did actually work on that question. (laughs) The first one was believe in yourself. Mm. Believe that you can do anything that you set out to do. Yes. And, and that you, uh, that you have the confidence, confidence to move forward and you you can do what you what you determine you you want to do right and and the second is take the initiative don't wait for somebody else to start something if you see something that needs to be done or started or worked on you have to do it you have to begin where you are right but if you but you have to have an idea of what your destination is Right. And have a goal about right. that. And the third was stick with your plan. Mm. You have to follow through and persevere. Sometimes through very peculiar circumstances. 
But right. you have to know you're going to stay the course and you're going to continue to work on whatever it is you think is important, um, be it personal or, or public. Right. That, you know, things don't happen quickly and they don't happen uh, easily. Right. The road's that, never straight, is it? That's right. That's right. And that there's really, you know, that thing, things that, that happen are the result of people's effort and uh, uh, nothing happens on its own. Even the house you live in, you know, right. you, if someone's generated enough money to, to buy it and, uh, 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 and you've, you've somehow organized your life in such a way that you can keep it. So everything that we do really requires a, a tremendous amount of effort on someone's part. Right. And uh, you have to stick with things over a long period of time, especially, especially things that are social change and public matters. That takes Those a long time, yes. take a very, very long time. Yes. And I don't think we're prepared very often to to know that you know we somehow think that once we think it it's happened but it's not so right. <laughs> and right. once we think it we've just begun to make it happen right it may take years for something to actually occur and that Littleton council for human relations went on for years and uh, it was very unusual and other su suburbs copied uh, the model that we had set forth here in Littleton mm -hmm. and people were always really surprised they couldn't figure out why we were so interested in the matter that in matters that were not quote right at our doorstep but but social justice does not have offense mm, there's it, 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 not not confined to a particular place it, it, it's part of our it's part of our heritage as Americans and if we don't do the work that needs to be done in our in our generation, just as other people did in their generation, it, things will not get better. Right. And, and I think we're all responsible for, for that kind of progress in our country. I love that. And I think it's really an important message to share right now. So I really appreciate it, Ellie. Um, I appreciate our time together today and all the great wisdom that you've been able to share with us. Well, thank you so much. It's been a privilege. It's been really a treat for me to have a chance to express some of those things. It's not, not like we have that opportunity every day. We don't. So I thank you for your, you for your interest and your time and for framing questions that are meaningful to me. That's good. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you, Kim. I hope you liked this episode of Extraordinary Women Radio. If you did, please share this podcast with your own special tribe of women and help spread the love, the dreams, and the inspiration. Are you thinking about making the next bold move in your life? I invite you to take the Your Next Bold Move quiz at CammieGelner.com to find out how you can jumpstart a passionate and meaningful next chapter. You may also enjoy my book, Fire Dancer, Your Spiral Journey to a Life of Passion and Purpose, which is available on Amazon. In Fire Dancer, you will become intimately connected to your heart's calling and build the courage and resiliency to ignite your what's next. 
I'd love to hear from you on any of my social media channels. I'm on both Facebook and Twitter, and the links are available on my website. Till next time, my friend, listen to your heart, follow your dreams, and be you.